Let's bow together in prayer now. Our great, our loving Heavenly Father, we come to you pleading your help as we open your word today. As we further study about who you are as our God and your great names, would you teach us your way? And amidst all the stuff in life that keeps drawing us to incorrect conclusions about who you are, the circumstances of our life that cause us to question you, Lord, refresh us with a fresh perspective of you. Thank you for your help in these moments as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I really wonder if some Christians have developed a Santa Claus theology. By Santa Claus theology, I mean uh, you view God as though you can crawl up into his lap and you can sit there and you can ask him for everything you want. And as long as you're basically a good person, you can expect to get that and you trust that you'll get that. However, as life goes on, what we find out living in a fallen world is oftentimes God does not answer the prayers that we ask of him in our Santa Claus theology. And sometimes we think maybe that's a misunderstanding between him and us. Sometimes we think it's something like maybe he forgot us or he can't do it or maybe we've been bad. And we don't get what we ask. A Santa Claus theology. When it comes to prayer, I think some Christians, maybe they don't quite have a Santa Claus theology, but they've developed a theology where they pray small, safe prayers. Prayers that can be answered coincidentally in life. Ask yourself the question, what is the biggest thing you ask God for this week? He is our Heavenly Father, and He is the maker of this universe with all power and authority. Did you ask for peanuts, toys, and trinkets this week? Or did you ask God for nations, even continents? How boldly do you pray? This comes down to everyday life as well. One of the great Christians of past generation here, he's with the Lord now, his name is Dawson Trotman. Some of you know Dawson and his work with the Navigators, directing the Navigators organization for years. Great organization, helping develop Christians and disciple them and so on. I read a couple of biographies on Dawson and just really taken with the man's life and uh, the godliness and the way he pursued God. I remember a story of him visiting South America. He went down there to visit a friend of his that was a missionary doing missions work in South America. A guy's name was uh, Clyde Taylor, and Clyde's down there serving. And, and so Dawson goes down to help his buddy down there, and they're serving. And Clyde began to notice a pattern in Dawson's life. After a really hard day of going out and sharing the Lord and discipling Christians and they come back to Clyde's place and they're just exhausted, Clyde's heading for bed and Dawson's saying, you know, Clyde, I think what my heart really needs right now is just a couple of hours of prayer. So Dawson would head out for a couple of hours of prayer while Clyde headed to bed. And Clyde says, without exception, the next day, it showed up in Dawson's life. 
Whatever he prayed in those hours and as he sought God, he came back with a renewed energy and a deeper devotion and an incredible focus, a sharper focus on God's word. He was truly empowered and Clyde was very impressed with that in Dawson's life. What did you ask God for this week? A God-sized prayer request, not something small, not something safe. Did you find energy and strength to meet the challenges that are facing you in life through your walk with God this week as you sought Him in prayer? I'm really not interested in a Santa Claus theology. I'm not interested in praying safe, small prayers. I want to grow way beyond that. We've been doing this series, Who is this God that we serve? You see, our contention is, is that as we live through life and we go through our struggles, we begin to develop our own ideas and attitudes about who God is and how he serves us and Santa Claus theology and other type things come up like that. And we've gone through a series on his attributes and now we're studying his names. You'll learn a lot about God through his names. Today's name is our Lord most wonderful. He is most wonderful. When you first hear a name like that, you think, well, yeah, of course he's wonderful. So what, what does this really have for me in the days that I'm facing? This particular term, when it's used of God in Scripture, seems to most always be in reference to our moments of need, and he comes through as God most wonderful. Today I'd like to lead you through three testimonies of our God most wonderful as recorded in the scriptures. The first one is found in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 13. Now, as a Bible student, if you read, studied, the book of Judges, uh, there's a cycle that's repeated in the book of Judges, time after time after time, and the cycle goes like this. The Israelites, you know, they get away from God and they start sinning, and so God brings up some pagan nation from outside them to come in and judge them and bring them into bondage, and they feel the bondage, and it's so bad, they start turning back to God, so, you know, they sin, and then the enemy comes in and conquers them, and then they turn back to God. That's the third step of the cycle, and the fourth step is then God raises up a deliverer to lead them in victory over the pagan nation that has them in bondage. Those deliverers are called judges. This cycle is repeated time after time after time. Fall into sin, enemy comes in, conquers. They repent and come back to God, and God raises up a deliverer. Time after time after time. Now, these deliverers are called judges, not judges like you and I think. The term was used differently at that time. Many of these judges were great military people. They didn't just pass on cases of debate, sit with their gavel, in a long gown, they were on the battlefield delivering Israel from captivity. In Judges 13, we come into that cycle. 
Israel's obviously they fell into sin again, you know, the regular thing. And, and so God raised up the Philistines to come in and conquer them. And it was hard under the Philistines, so they repent. And God begins raising up a new judge in Judges 13. His name is Samson. Most of us know Samson as being the incredible warrior, very strong man, and he delivered the Israelites from the Philistines. Judges 13 is the beginning of his story. His mom and dad can't have a baby. Mom is sterile. And the angel of the Lord appears to them and says, you're going to have a baby, and your baby's going to be the deliverer for Israel. In Judges chapter 13, the opening in verses 2 and 3 begin this way. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites. That is, he's of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Dan. He has a wife who is sterile and remains childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Samson. It's the beginning of the fourth step in the cycle. God is raising up a new deliverer, Samson. Well, Manoah's wife is very excited about this. She runs and tells Manoah, I, I saw the angel of the Lord and he appeared to me and he said, I'm going to have a baby. You can't have a baby. You're going to have a baby. We're going to have a baby. Very exciting. Manoah prays to God and says, Lord, great message. Come back. Send your angel back to talk to us again and give us a little bit more detail. How to raise this child. What to do. So the angel of the Lord appears a second time, this time to Manoah, and gives him a series of steps and what to do and how to raise the child. And, and they include what we now know as the Nazarite vow, uh, three very specific things, no strong drink and don't touch dead corpses, bodies, or anything like that, and don't cut hair. And of course, Samson violated all three of those, and he had to be punished by God for that long story you can read the chapters 14, 15, 16, all about that. We're in 13 today. Testimony of the Lord Most Wonderful comes up a little later in chapter 13. And Noah has seen the angel of the Lord. And by the way, the angel of the Lord, we know who that is in the Old Testament. Almost without exception, and it seems overwhelmingly, it's always what we call a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. That is, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem and took on the incarnation, the human flesh, before he did that, he occasionally appeared in the Old Testament to his people. He's always called the angel of the Lord. Twice he appeared to Manoah about a deliverer for Israel that would be born. Kind of interesting, ultimately, he'll be the ultimate deliverer for Israel. The angel of the Lord came twice and the second time when he talked to Manoah, he said this in 17 and 18. Manoah's inquiring of the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we might honor you when your word comes true and the baby is born? And he, the angel of the Lord, replies, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. You have a copy of the old King James and you're reading along today. You see the translation is, the name is Wonderful. It is beyond understanding. 
This is the first testimony I want to bring to you today about the Lord most wonderful. So what does this mean? Why would you call yourself wonderful? The word wonderful here, or the term beyond understanding, is the Hebrew word that means remarkable, wonderful, beyond your understanding. There's something secretive about this name. It's beyond you. Story of Judges 13 is the story of God taking nothing, a barren womb, and making something of it, a deliverer. Psalm 139, David said this in verse 6, Such knowledge about you, God, is just too wonderful for me. It's the same word used in Judges 13. It's secretive to me, God. It's beyond me. It's too lofty for me to attain to. And I don't get this. I don't understand you, God. So our God, testified to in Judges 13, is the one who takes nothing, a barren womb, and he makes something of it. Sort of like creation, he takes nothing, and he makes the universe. Many of us in this place today know what it is like to have nothing in our lives and God makes something of it. Some of us have seen God take an empty bank account and pay bills. Some of us have been in difficult situations in life and stressed by people and we are impatient with it and intolerant and God turns our impatience and intolerance into patience and tolerance. Some of you have been challenged to do some great things for God and you never thought you could possibly do it and God gave you the grace and the ability and you did it. He took nothing and he turned it into something. I'll never forget in our early days of ministry, we had so little and we had a couple kids and I was in seminary and full-time ministry and literally we had nothing. Emily can testify to this too. Very little and we didn't even always have the ability to purchase food, and then out of nothing, on our front stoop, a bag of groceries would appear. No idea who it came from. Have you had moments in your life where God took the nothingness, the vacancy of your life, and he did something wonderful? God, your ways are beyond me. It's absolutely amazing what he can do. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. His ways are wonderful. They are beyond us. They are secretive to us, beyond our wildest dreams. Several years ago, there was a great Christian song that was out, and frankly, Christians wore it out. Now we hardly hear it anymore. He's more wonderful than my mind can conceive. He's more wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and my fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul ever longed for, everything he promised, and so much more. He's amazing. He's marvelous. He's miraculous. That's what Jesus is to me. He's wonderful. He's the Lord most wonderful. And when your life has been empty and the wonderful long Lord comes along and he makes something of it, you know this is the God most wonderful. That's the first testimony where 
the name is established, the Lord Most Wonderful. Let me give you a second testimony in Scripture to the Lord Most Wonderful, and this one is actually a prophetic word about Jesus coming to earth. It's often quoted at Christmas time. It's from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And the text says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A chi- Notice how it says, a child is born, as though it's already... This is 600 years before the birth of Christ. But God is so confident in his plan, he's going to pull it off. He says, a child is already born. A child is born. A son is given. It's spoken in the tense of it's already done. It's as good as done. And the government will be on his shoulders. That is, he will rule and reign. And he will someday in that millennial age. Christ will rule and reign. And the text goes on to give some of his titles. He's called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, the interesting thing about this is that a lot of theologians like to have arguments over these last titles. Are there four titles? He's the Wonderful Counselor. He's the Mighty God. He's the Everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Some say, yeah, it's four titles. Some say, no, no, it's really eight. You've got to put the commas between them. He is wonderful. He is the counselor. He's mighty. He's God. He's everlasting. He's father. He's prince and he's peace. You get eight of them. So while the theologians are arguing whether it's four titles or eight titles, the rest of us are slogging our way through life, and we just need the truth of, these, of this verse. I sort of lean towards four names. He's the wonderful counselor. You can't prove that. I'm no Hebrew grammarian, but from what I understand, it could go either way here. It could be four or eight. It doesn't really matter ultimately. The concept of wonderful is the same word that was used back in Judges 13 and what we looked at in Psalm 139. It's a secret. It's, it's, it's amazing. His ways are beyond us. He is the Lord most wonderful. In fact, here it's saying he's the wonderful counselor. The fact that he is the counselor means that he's the advisor, the consultant, the guide, the counselor to you in your life. What an amazing, marvelous counselor he is. Since he sees everything, who better to direct you in life? Since he knows the future, who better to advise you? Since he knows everything about everything, who better to solve your issues? Since he is always right, the wonderful counselor will never give you wrong advice. He is perfectly holy, so you never have to wonder about his motives and what he tells you to do. And he is altogether wise as the wonderful counselor He is practical and realistic in every sense of the word. He knows right where to look in your life to handle the problems that you're facing. I remember years ago hearing that story of Henry Ford, you know, the founder of the Ford Organization, the Ford Corporation. And years ago at the beginning, back when they started the assembly lines and all of that, there was one day in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, where the assembly line was rolling and all of a sudden the generators broke down and those 
the systems fell apart and the employees are standing around and this is costing thousands of dollars an hour. Nothing's being produced. So Henry Ford calls up a buddy of his who is an absolute genius when it comes to electrical issues and so on. Uh, this guy, his name was uh, uh, Steinmetz, and he calls Steinmetz in to take a look at this and get the generators rolling. So Steinmetz, a little, little guy, comes over and he starts walking through the factory and poking his finger here and there and does a couple little things. And after a couple hours, flips a switch and generators come back on. And Henry Ford's thinking, this guy's an incredible genius. Few days later, the bill arrived. Steinmetz charged Henry Ford $10,000 to fix these generators. Now you have to remember, this was in the early 1900s, 30s, something like that, 40s. A lot of money, a lot of money today, let alone back then. Henry Ford looked at that bill and thought, are you kidding me, the guy was here two hours. And so he wrote a little note to Steinmetz, and he said, you know, look, I understand there's going to be a bill, and I'm certainly willing to pay it, but $10,000 for two hours? Steinmetz wrote a little note back to Henry Ford. Two hours labor, $10. Where to tinker and look, $9,990. You get the right person on the job, you're paying for experience and knowledge. With God, you have a wonderful counselor, and he will never charge you a cent. He knows right where to poke his finger in your life to get to the heart of the issues you're facing. He's the wonderful counselor. He is the most wonderful God. That's the second use. Oh, we need this today. We need him tinkering in our lives. Let's move to a third testimony of his most wonderful nature. This one, when I saw it, just blew me away. I've known this passage. I've preached it through the years at different times, but I never saw it in this light before. And when I did, the light went on, and I was just amazed. For our third testimony, I want to go to the man Job, who most of us know was a man who was incredibly wealthy, blessed by God, and he lost it all in a few moments of time. The opening of the book of Job, right before the book of Psalms and the scriptures, the opening chapter, verses 1 and 2, say this. In the land of Uz, there was a man, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. This was a very righteous, holy, living man. The text says that he has seven sons and three daughters. And some of you know the story, some of you don't. You'll want to read the opening two chapters if you don't know it, because literally, this man, the, the chapter goes on to describe his incredible wealth, and yet he still was focused on his God. He was a clean, living man. 
what he didn't know in the cosmos, the enemy Satan himself was accusing God's workers, and he accused Job before God. Yeah, God, sure he serves you. Look at the way you bless this guy. He's so wealthy, it's incredible. And he's got all these beautiful kids and great relationships. You just let me at him. He will curse you to your face. God said, no, he won't. He's faithful. And God gave Satan the opportunity to go after Job, both barrels. And in a matter of moments, God or I'm sorry, Satan actually created a storm that wiped out his 10 children and he lost all of his wealth, his livestock, everything. And in round two of that in the opening two chapters, you see that Satan accused God again regarding Job and God even allowed Satan to take his health. And after losing everything, including his children, Boils all over his skin, scratching, itching, just so uncomfortable. And his wife says, oh, Job, this is awful. Why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, I came into this world with nothing. I'm going out of this world with nothing. God gives, God takes away, blessed be his name. And he stayed faithful, just like God said he would. Satan had nothing. Of course, Job didn't know about Satan what was going on. He just couldn't figure out why he's going through all this. What had he done? Chapter 3 of the book of Job begins a very difficult section of the book where a few of Job's friends come to visit him and they sit quietly for seven days and because the custom was the one suffering would have to speak first. Finally, Job speaks up. And it begins a series of debates and discussions with his buddies. And basically, his buddies keep telling him, hey, Job, I don't know what you did, but man, you must have done something awful bad. Just okay, just tell us. Come on, what'd you do? Job said, I didn't do anything. Before God, I didn't do anything. I don't know why this is happening. I just wish God could, would testify to my innocence. And it goes on and on. And for a number of chapters, from chapters 3 to 37, these guys go at it with each other. And they're accusing Job of sin. I mean, if it's not bad enough, he's lost everything in his health. Now his own friends are turning on him. And then it happens. In Job chapter 38, God speaks. He gives a speech that is the longest speech we have anywhere in the Bible of God speaking. Job 38, 39, 40, and 41, four chapters. And God never explains to Job at this point what happened with Satan the whole bit. The bottom line of God's speech was, Job, don't question me. You're going to be okay. And so God begins to question Job. I mean, in our difficult times, we got questions for God. This is the section where God says, you got questions for me? I got a few for you. And in spite of all Job's losses, God says to Job, he begins with the universe. Where were you when I marked off this universe and I made it? Tell me, Job, from your great understanding. You think I'm not running things right and you don't agree with what I've allowed to happen to you? 
Where were you when I made this universe? When I paced it off. And then he goes to nature and he talks about the sea and the rising of the tide and the tide going out and the rising of the sun and the snow and the lightning and the thunder and the rain and the ice and the frost. And where were you, Job, when I created all this and put this stuff into motion? Then he talks constellations, Pleiades, Orion, the bear. He names three constellations. Where were you when I put the stars out there and I aligned them this way? Tell me about it, Job. You know how to do that? I know you got questions, but you know how to do these things. I, I've got this. Then he moves to animal life, lions and mountain goats and wild donkeys and wild oxen and ostrich, the horse, the eagle, the hawk. He even has two extended sections on very large animals, behemoth and leviathan. He also questions Job. Job, do you really know what true justice is? You want to talk about justice, Job, and you want justice? Do you know what true justice is? Four chapters of this, and Job is absolutely stunned. He is speechless. One commentator says, as though Job hit his funny bone, and Job. <laughs> I think it was more than a funny bone. One commentator talks about how Job got the left and the right and the left and the right and probably went to the mat and he was stunned. Yeah, that's getting closer. God put him down in the mat. Finally, in chapter 42, Job responds. Quietly, with humility, are you ready? Listen to the response now. Job 42 two and three. God, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. God, you said, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? I know you're talking to me, God. Surely I have spoken about things I did not understand. Things too Wonderful for me. Same Hebrew word used in our two previous testimonies. He is the Lord most wonderful. I've spoken of things too wonderful, too secretive, beyond me, things I don't know about, things I can't understand. I've spoken about those things. And he repents. He trusts God more deeply. God never changed the circumstances to this point in his life. He's still broken health, lost everything. God will restore it at the end of the story, but lessons have to be learned. And Job humbles himself before God. God, I have questions for you. He moved from that to, God, there are so many things I don't get, and you've got it. We all have our issues in life. Uh, last few months, Emily and I made a couple of trips to Western New York. Many of you know I have a disabled sister that lives up there. We travel up there a few times a year to take care of her needs. She's been moving from independent living and she's now in assisted living. It's been a rough transition, hasn't been pretty. We had to close down the apartment and all kinds of stuff and health issues and got her settled and 
as much as you can say it's settled. One of those two trips, I can't remember which one it was, on whether it was the first one or the second one, but the end of the trip, I mean, we're pretty exhausted. It's hard work, and it's not fun. And it was Emily's idea. She said, why don't we just go over to Niagara Falls for the afternoon? And where my sister lives about 25 minutes from Niagara Falls, so we hopped in the car and went over to Niagara Falls. And you stand there at the edge of the falls. I, I've been there many times. I grew up real close to there. I've uh, been there many times and enjoyed it. You stand there at the edge of the falls. And you know every second, 750,000 gallons of water goes over the two falls there. Every second. Three quarters of a million gallons a second. You know that in one hour, five and a half billion gallons of water go over the two falls, the American and Horseshoe Falls. This is a huge statement in nature. And there's something therapeutic about standing there and seeing the majesty of our God in just one act of creation, let alone the entire universe all around us and what he has done. And in the midst of the difficulties of life, to actually stand there and say, my God is too wonderful for me to understand and his ways are way beyond me. And he made a perfect world and we turn this world into a world of sin and consequences and difficulty and there's sickness and everything else. And our God most wonderful has still said, I will sustain you through this. The Lord most wonderful is there for us. Day in and day out, we face difficulties of life. Do you realize this is the worst it will ever get? Because someday we will be with the Lord most wonderful forever. It's only going to get better. There is all kinds of hope here. And we could depend upon a God whose ways are way beyond ours. His ways are absolutely wonderful. There's a secretiveness to us because uh, to him because it's beyond us in our comprehension. He's got us. And we'll be with him forever. We look around us and we see people who don't even follow our Lord and they're being blessed unbelievably. You have to understand this is the best it will ever get for them and it goes downhill for them from here on out. But for us, forever and ever, we will sing his praise. We will never grow bored of him because he is the Lord most wonderful. People say, well, you know, worship God forever and eternity. Isn't that going to be like bored? No, no, no. You don't understand the Lord most wonderful. We will never bore of him. Where are you today in your walk with him? Have you developed a, a Santa Claus theology that, you know, he's almost like a little fairy tale and you crawl up in his lap and ask for what you want and then you get it or you don't get it and you don't quite always know how to respond? That is not the God of the Bible. 
You develop that from the pressures around you and the culture and what you're experiencing in life and what you've been taught on prayer and what you kind of dreamed of. You come up with it. We all do. We've got to go back to the book and say, who is this God? And today we're discovering he is the God most wonderful beyond our comprehension. He's got us. Maybe you need to step to the side of a proverbial Niagara Falls and just drink in for a little bit of how great he is. No pun intended, drink in. Did anyone catch? No, I'm sorry. Dry humor, I know. Do you know this Lord most wonderful? As I close today, if you're sitting here and you say, well, boy, I'm not sure that's the God I know about. You need to know this God most wonderful really, really loves you. And you talk about trying to give up a lot for him in this life. What did he give up for us? Jesus himself, member of the Godhead, comes to this earth and takes on the form of one of his creations, humanity. He veils his great power as God Almighty, and he becomes a man. And he experiences life in this fallen world. And then at the age of 30-some, he goes to that cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. That's how much he loved you, and he wants you in his presence forever. Enjoying him, the Lord most wonderful. You've not come to the place in your spiritual pilgrimage where you've trusted him to forgive your sins. This is the first step of knowing this Lord most wonderful. You bow with me in this moment of time, please. And if you're here today and you're not sure if you've made that decision or you know you never have, I invite you to pray a little prayer right now in your own words to him, just saying something like, God, I know I'm a sinner, and my sin just keeps me out of your heaven, but I believe your son, Jesus, took the punishment for my sin. And I ask you to forgive my sin today. And the Lord, most wonderful, will take the nothingness of your life, and he will create you into a child of God. He will become your Lord, most wonderful. Thank you, Father, that you are this God most wonderful and you have provided a way of salvation for us, for us to be with you forever. And you've provided sustaining power and joy in the midst of a crazy and messed up fallen world. And you've given peace to us where there is no peace. And you've given us joy where there is no joy because you are the Lord most wonderful. You can take nothing and you can make something beautiful out of it. Thank you for taking our lives and redeeming us as your children. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for your sustaining grace. In Jesus' name, amen.